0: In the Sermon on the Mount. I promise we won't go through uh, all of Matthew at this pace, uh, but I I, I felt like uh, to take more than two of the Beatitudes at a time would be to not be able to really put into practice what we see here in this treasure Christ has given us. So follow along with me as we once again read Matthew chapter. Five verses one through twelve, and then we will pray. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed And persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Heavenly Father, we want to turn to you once again in prayer. And to to pray for some needs in our church and in the world and in the community. But also to confess our dependence upon you and our need of reliance upon you. Lord, we, we need your Spirit to, uh, to, to open our eyes. Lord, we, we need, as we are told in 1 Corinthians, the, the mind of Christ in order to be able to understand things that are not knowable apart from your Spirit. And so may you, by your Spirit this morning, teach us all that your Word has for us. Lord, may, may we may we never cease to marvel at the wonder of of your salvation and of what you have done for us in Christ and of the glories and happiness there is to be had in your kingdom. Lord, we want to pray for uh, the state trooper who was shot and wounded this week. Um, it's It's unbelievable to me that he could have been shot in the face twice and still drive himself to the hospital. Uh, Lord, we thank you that uh, there's a possibility that he may come out of ICU today, Uh, and though he may be up there in Seattle for months, we just pray for for his healing, for his strength, for his recovery. Lord, I I have no idea the extent of the injuries or what his future may hold, but we pray for him. We pray for his fiance. We pray for his family, some of whom are even among us today and, and are part of us. And I didn't know that till yesterday, Lord, but, um, but may we as a church uh, find ways to bless them and care for them. Lord, we know that, uh, that you, um, you have given us government and, uh, and those who even uh, bear the sword that, uh, that society might continue. Lord, but I think your word is pretty clear that, uh, that you have given us the gift of, of government and the gift of... Uh, of laws and law enforcement for the sake of the spread of the gospel, for the sake of free worship, for the sake of uh, of the spread of your kingdom. So Lord, let it not be lost on us that we come here this morning to worship freely because of what you have given us here in this country, but, but that those freedoms are not for the sake of neglecting worship nor evangelism, nor hospitality, but that we might engage in them freely. Lord, we want to honor in our own hearts and in our minds those who pay prices like this for our freedoms and safety and protection. But Lord, may we honor not only them, but you by pressing into the fullness of what worship is and what worship does. And what worship proclaims out into the world. So Lord, we continue to ask and we'll continue to ask that you, that you bring great healing and comfort about to him and wisdom to the doctors. Lord, we continue to pray for the Rubishes. We, we praise you that the conditions there in Sri Lanka seem to be improving. Uh, that there's uh, gas available and that uh, Ted and Renati were able to get away last month. We, uh, we're grateful for that. Lord, we pray that you give them wisdom. Wisdom to know how to help uh, ministries struggling over how to respond to the economic and uh, political situation over there. Um, Lord, may the Rubishes and other believers have peace and protection and provision in this time. Uh, Lord, we, we want to pray, as uh, I just found out this morning, that they are beginning the process of applying for visas again. And whereas that used to be an annual uh, thing, now it's quarterly and it's time-consuming and stressful and so we just pray that you would uh, help that process to go smoothly and that they would uh, be able to be granted the visas that they need, Lord, also that it would return to, uh, to, to less frequent necessity of applying for those visas. Lord, as we turn now again to your word and to see uh, how you instruct us to be happy in, your, in this world and in your kingdom and what we'll be happy eternally in, we pray that you would give us great uh, obedience to your word. For your glory and for our good, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. We are continuing this morning in the Sermon on the Mount, which I would remind us is the first instruction of the King, of of Christ to his people. He has been presented as the King, and in his first address as King, his first order of business is to tell us how to be happy and as I've already mentioned, we often think that it's the externals that will make us happy. If I had more wealth, or more respect, or more influence, or more kindness, or more uh, affection, or love, or whatever it is we think we need, if, if somebody would just input more into my life, then I'll be happy. But one of the things Jesus is challenging us to understand here is that happiness isn't something that comes as a result of what happens to us. Let's say that again happiness is not the result of something that happens to us and this can be seen in these beatitudes remember the word for blessed is a word that means to be happy and the first four beatitudes are almost entirely internal realities i have sought to apply them to our lives but the first four beatitudes that we've seen aren't really about how we relate to people they are internal realities. They're things that happen inside us. And so first we declare spiritual bankruptcy. We, we confess that we offer nothing to God, as Paul says in Romans, that he has not first offered to us whether that be tithes or offering or praise or time or worship, we cannot give anything to him that he has not first given to us. And so in reality, not just spiritually, but in every way, we're completely bankrupt. We have nothing to offer God, except what he has already offered to us. Jennifer and I go to the Christian Aid Center and teach a Bible study every Monday morning. She teaches to the women, and I teach to the men. And it's one of my favorite times. And they get a little baffled by that. And I told them that one time. I said, this is one of my favorite things I get to do is come teach you guys. And they're like, man, you need better things to do. And they meant it. But I want to tell you why I appreciate my time with them. When I stand in this pulpit, and I call Christians what they are, depraved sinners, desperately in need of redemption, sometimes people come back to me and say, how can you talk to us like that? But when I tell them that they're depraved sinners... They go, yeah, we know. And then when I tell them, but God loves them and has redeemed them and desires them and delights in them, there is an awe and a wonder to that, that many of us, maybe who have walked with the Lord a long time and forgot who we are apart from him, don't experience sometimes. I'm telling you, when we begin to think highly of ourselves, when we forget that we are sinners in need of declaring spiritual bankruptcy, as our views of ourself rise, our views of our Savior necessarily fall. And we rob ourselves of an incredible joy in in understanding just How sinful and wicked we are apart from divine intervention. Jonathan Edwards, when he was 18 years old, wrote one of his resolutions was that he would only allow the knowledge of sin in others to promote shame and confession in himself. And that he would understand that, there, that there, no matter what he sees in other people, he would consider himself to be the most vile of sinners. Imagine, imagine a church where when we saw other people's sin, we'll get to this later, we didn't find delight in publicizing it, gossip and slander. We didn't use it as opportunity to make ourselves feel better what if we use the knowledge of other people's sin to promote shame and confession in ourselves? That's what it looks like to declare spiritual bankruptcy. We'd no longer have to be afraid. Who, who had knowledge of our sin? We could lean much harder into the, the Romans 8 reality of, uh, of nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. We need to be amazed that that God would forgive spiritual despots like ourselves. We declare spiritual bankruptcy and then we mourn over our sin. We don't make excuses for it. We don't pretend it's okay. We don't justify ourselves because either Christ can justify us Or we can attempt to justify ourselves, but both will not be simultaneously true. And when we mourn over our sin, when we understand ourselves to be that kind of sinner, we can cultivate a spirit of gentleness and meekness that God and anybody else would treat us as well as they do. That we deserve far worse than we've ever been treated. We view ourselves rightly. So to declare spiritual bankruptcy is to understand our own depravity. To mourn over our sin is to be sad over that sinfulness. To cultivate gentleness is to view ourselves rightly. And then number four, we saw we do what is right in verse six. But, But again, it's really not just about doing what is right. It's an internal reality of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And so internally, we understand we're spiritually bankrupt, we're wicked sinners, that we don't deserve to be treated well by anyone, and we hunger and thirst for righteousness, not only in the church but in, and in our homes, but in the world. But the second four, there's a, a shift, and no longer are they primarily internal, they're primarily relational. They're primarily how we relate to other people in the kingdom. And so the two we're going to look at today, I think maybe both flow out of, I mean, there's so much connection from the Beatitudes into the Psalms. But maybe both of these two are flowing out of Psalm eighteen twenty-five, which says, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful, and with the blameless man, you show yourself merciful blameless. We'll probably talk about this again later. But, but I, I think what we often, we, we kind of just skip to, well, if we're merciful, we, you know, God is merciful. And if we're blameless, God is blameless. But I think the wonder of Psalm 18.25 is not the words merciful or blameless, but show. The preoccupation with the psalmist, not just David, is to see God. Who can see God? And so this word show should jump out at us. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. And with the blameless, you show yourself blameless. That God would show himself to us is a wonder, and that's exactly what we're going to see here as we continue in the Beatitudes. And so let's look at our next two ways to happiness. Number five is to show mercy. Very simply, show mercy. Jesus says, blessed are, happy are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This is probably the most reciprocal of all the Beatitudes. To, to, to show mercy is to receive mercy. But before we can understand what this means, we have to understand what is mercy, I think one of the most common definitions of mercy we have maybe heard is that mercy is getting what you, or not getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve, and grace is getting what you don't deserve. Those are good definitions. They're a good starting point. They are true, but I don't know that they're complete. And so I want to give us an additional uh, definition for mercy particularly, but also grace. Mercy, and understanding the contrast between mercy and grace can help us to understand what Jesus is saying here. So here is my definition, really robbed from several others and compiled together, of mercy. Mercy is God's concern for the miserable plight of sinners. Mercy is God's concern for the miserable plight of sinners. Is there concern from you for the the bad effects of sin in other people's lives? Do you have a concern for them? I don't really like using analogies of myself, particularly not positive ones, but it's just one that that came to mind, and that is, Jennifer uh, likes to... Um, Tease me good heartedly about the fact that I can't leave somebody sitting on the side of the road, particularly a lady. I grew up in a household with a single mom, and like, you know, before cell phones. And so if our car died and we were stuck on the side of the road, we were at the mercy of those who might show mercy upon us, who might have a concern for our miserable plight. I was dropping Jennifer off somewhere a couple of weeks ago and I saw a lady uh, on the side of the road with her hazard lights on, and it looked like she was crying. And I said, I think that lady's crying. So I went, and I dropped Jennifer off, and I came back. She had a flat tire. She didn't know how to change her own flat tire. And she'd been sitting there for 45 minutes, and I was the first person who had stopped. Nobody had shown mercy for her condition. Nobody had shown mercy for her plight. Uh, Mercy... Is, is concern for the miserable plight of sinners even when they got themselves there. Even when it is the result of their own choices and actions. Mercy does not leave somebody uh, begging on the side of the road. I'm not saying necess- mercy necessarily gives them money either. But, but a, a, an entire lack of concern for somebody's condition... Is not mercy grace. On the other hand, is the giving of abundant resources. I looked up the U.S. national debt yesterday, and it's uh, that clock is moving fast. So I can only speak to the last 24 hours. But it was almost 31 trillion dollars of debt. If God paid 31 trillion dollars to the Federal Reserve, that would be mercy. That would be concern for the miserable plight of a nation but it only brings us back to zero. If God deposited 62 trillion into the national reserve that would be both mercy and grace. Mercy concerns itself for the plight of sinners. Grace is lavish blessing. Richard Lenski helps us understand this well. He says, The noun eleos, or mercy, always deals with what we see of pain, misery, and distress. These results of sin. And charis, grace, always deals with the sin and guilt itself. The one extends relief, the other pardon. The one cures, heals, helps, the other cleanses and reinstates. Mercy deals with the effects of sin. And it must be understood that those who have received mercy give mercy. I think we see this, uh, and we're going to come back to it in Matthew 18, but we see this most clearly maybe in Jesus' illustration of the wicked servant. He says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king, Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and, you should, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers that he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, let me put the size of these debts into perspective, Okay. A denarii, or a denarius, was one day's wage for a laborer. So a hundred denarii would be 100 days wages for a laborer. Divide that by five, you can do the math. You need about 20 weeks of work, assuming no other debts or bills to pay to pay that off. But what about a talent? A talent is 20 years' worth of work. At that rate. So if you do the math at a six day work week, which would have been the norm in Israel, it's what God commands in Scripture. uh, If you do the math at a six day work week and considering that you worked 50 weeks a year, that would take 200,000 years to repay. The king forgave the wicked servant of a debt that he could not pay in many lifetimes. Two hundred thousand years is what the king forgave. And the servant turned right around and and could not forgive one hundred days worth of wages. The king had a concern for the miserable plight of the servant. There's no way he could repay this debt. But he didn't get what he had been forgiven of. I think one of the things that should be noted here is that God doesn't suspend justice for mercy. He canceled our debt not by just printing more money or simply saying it doesn't exist. He canceled our debt by paying our debt. See, we live in a world today that wants to say that that, uh, a lack of justice is merciful, and that's just false mercy, because there can be no mercy where there is no justice. There can be no uh, caring for one's miserable plight when there is not a declaration of the effects of their sin. As the church seeks to be merciful, as Christians seek to be merciful, we don't be merciful by pretending that people have not offended God or others. We're merciful in the way that we treat them even when they have offended us or God. See, when God chose to show mercy to us, he didn't cancel our debt, as Colossians says, by merely just saying it doesn't exist. But by paying for it. And sometimes, sometimes I think we fail to understand what our debt was. What, what is it, what is the currency at stake in our debt to sin? Why can't we pay for our own sin? And I would charge that the debt we owe is a debt of glory. That our sin, at its most basic level, is an assault on the glory of God. And any attempt on our own to repay that debt is like pretending that you can pay 200,000 years worth of wages in one lifetime. See, we have a bigger problem, though, than a lifetime. We have a problem of infinity, We have a God who is infinite in glory, infinite in holiness, infinite in power, infinite in might. And so when we sin against the infinite dignity of the holy God, we have sinned even one time an infinite offense. And eternity is not enough time to pay for an infinite offense. So how then can an infinite debt be paid? It is when the infinite Son of God takes an infinitely humble position by becoming one of us. To instruct us. To show us what we should be like. To show us what holiness as a human is. And then who, living the perfect life that we can't live, goes to the cross and pays the debt that we owed. Romans is clear that the wages of sin is death. The due payment for our glory debt is death. And so he, owing no debt of death, dies in our place. The infinitely holy God bears the infinite wrath of God on the cross for sinners. And then he's buried and he rises again. And an infinite payment by the infinite God is made for the infinite offense of sinners. And so an infinite payment from an infinite God not only covers your debt but mine and anybody else who believes in him because an infinite payment can cover an infinite number of infinite offenses. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. God shows mercy for us by paying not 200,000 years worth of wages, but an infinite amount of glory. And so we show mercy. Interestingly the reward of our mercy is God's mercy. I promise you, God will be the only place where this is reciprocated in full. God shows mercy to those who show mercy. It should be very crystal clear to us that this that that our showing of mercy is not the reason for God's showing of mercy. That's clear from Matthew 18 and the parable of the wicked sinner. It is not our mercy that results in God's mercy. It is God's mercy that results in our mercy. And so it's not our mercy that is the reason God shows us mercy. It is our mercy that is the occasion upon which God shows us mercy. He is not merciful only in response to us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His mercy is the reason for our mercy. And then when we are merciful, that provides the occasion for His mercy. And we're going to see this very quickly in Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, where Jesus, after instructing his disciples how to pray, says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your, notice what he calls God in relationship to them, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Notice a lack of forgiveness does not remove God as being our father. It simply breaks down the relationship. When children sin against their parents, there is a breakdown in the relationship. I've told my kids... I can only bless you if you live inside the boundaries of my blessing. When we fail to forgive, it does not mean God is no longer our Father, but it does mean that relationally there is a breakdown between us and God. It means he might look at us and say, leave your gift at the altar and go make things right with your brother before you come to me because you can't come to me until you've made things right with them. How do we apply mercy? I'm gonna give three suggestions. First, we show mercy in kindness to the poor, the needy, the downcast, the distraught. There is a real physical, tangible aspect to this mercy. Mercy. Jesus healed people. He fed people. He he saw that the crowds were hungry and had compassion on them and miraculously fed people. First, mercy is played out in kindness to the poor and the needy and the downcast and the distraught. There is a physical reality to mercy. Secondly, mercy plays out in our attitudes. We don't hold a grudge or capitalize on other people's weaknesses. We don't gossip or slander. We don't publicize people's sins. Our attitude towards others, maybe particularly when they have sinned against us, is how we apply mercy. And thirdly, we show spiritual mercy for the lost. We show spiritual mercy for the lost. Augustine, some call him Augustine, it actually Augustine, uh, said this. He said, If I weep for the body from which the soul is departed, should I not weep for the soul from which God is departed? What, What pains you more? The loss of a believing loved one or the knowledge that you rub shoulders with people every day Who are on their way to hell? What grieves us more? If we'll weep for lost believers, but not weep, I mean, for departed believers, if we will weep for dead believers, but not weep for lost sinners, what does that say about the condition of our mercy? So as we're struggling with this idea of what it means to to reach out to 505, go again to the Brennan's class, second hour, it will be helpful to you. But I would encourage us all to spend some time thinking about the eternal destinies of people. I would consider us all considering the fact that, as C.S. Lewis said, and as we see very clearly in 2 Corinthians, you have never met a mere mortal Everybody you ever have met is either heaven bound or hell bound. Everybody you interact with is heaven bound or hell bound. Secondly, we pursue holiness. This sounds very similar to doing what is right. But uh, a desire for righteousness and action and a pursuit of holiness are two different things. So not only are the merciful blessed for they shall receive mercy, but blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. And as I read commentaries, there's a lot of splitting hairs about what it means to be pure in heart. There's kind of two major camps. One camp says to be pure in heart is to, uh, to be your true self. That could be a good idea, and that could be a horrible idea. And the other says to, to desire and to want what is holy and right. And I'm looking at these two options, and I'm saying, if you're a believer, are not both true? If you're a believer in Christ, if you are a new creation, if you have been regenerated, if the Spirit lives in you, if your dead soul has been given spiritual life, can you on the one hand be comfortable with sin and on the other hand be a hypocrite? Both of these we would say is wrong. Because if God has made you alive in Christ, the necessary result and what he is transforming us into is holy people. And simultaneously, we have to live according to who God is making us to be. This was the problem of the Pharisees. Matthew 23, 25 through 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, hypocrites. Actors is, is the, the plain understanding of this word. For you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness.'" If the mercy receive mercy, the pure in heart see God. And again, this is the great desire of the Old Testament writers, was to see God. Psalm 24, 3-4. to Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Who gets to see God? Those whose lives and hearts match. Not the duplicitous, not the hypocrite. And this should concern us all because we're all hypocrites. I've told you guys before if anybody ever tells you, no, I can't go to the church, that place is full of hypocrites, just say, well, come anyways. We've got room for one more. And that would be true. We're all hypocrites. If we're believers, if we've been made alive in Christ and we struggle with sin, and we do, we're a hypocrite. If you say you don't struggle with sin, well, then you're just a liar. Read 1 John, that's clear. This is problematic for all of us. If it is the pure in heart... Who, who see God, if it is those who have clean hands and don't lift their soul up to what is false and don't swear deceitfully, if we're neither hypocrites nor liars, if those are the people who, who will see God, we're all in trouble. What do we do? Well, I don't think we're too far off from what we saw last week. 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is Spirit. We continue to press in to the knowledge of Christ and not just the knowledge of Christ, a, a delight in Christ, because we become like what we behold. We become what, what we love. We, but more than just that, we we really truly do become what we behold. Why do people, and I mentioned this last week, why do people who are obsessed with not being like their parents end up just like their parents? Because we become what we behold. We, we need to behold the glory of God in the face of Christ and thus be transformed from that image to from one degree of glory to another, to, to become that image. If we have declared spiritual bankruptcy and trust Christ, someday that conforming work that we are in the process of now will be complete. Listen to 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. If you're in the kingdom now, remember that's the only present tense promise here. If you declare spiritual bankruptcy, yours is the kingdom of heaven. We shall be comforted. We shall inherit the earth. We shall be satisfied. We shall receive mercy. We shall see God. Those have not happened yet, but we are in the kingdom now. We are his children now. And what what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Notice the formula there. It's not because we are like him, we shall see him, but because we see him, we shall be like him. Because someday, because of God's grace in Christ, we will in the fullness of his glory behold the full measure of his glory. And upon beholding the full measure of the glory of Christ, we will be instantaneously transformed fully into that image. We will become like what we behold. It is the seeing that makes us like him, not the opposite. So, how do we become pure in heart? Two suggestions. First, I've mentioned this already, we pay attention to God's word. We, we read God's Word day in and day out, until we worship, until we delight in Christ. Dusty Bibles always lead to dirty lives. John 15:3, Jesus says to Peter, uh, "You are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you." It is the word of Christ. That is, uh, th- that makes us like him in this life. It's pretty trendy these days, by the way. I'll add this in here because we're not pulling the alarm in two minutes. We will second service. But it's pretty trendy these days to, uh, to think that, well, if, the, if they're red letters, that's okay. In fact, one politician back east recently said, hey, read your Bible, look at the red letters. Jesus never said anything about abortion. In fact, the guy prefaced that statement by saying, I know the Bible. I might be a backslidden Baptist, but I know the Bible. And Jesus didn't say anything about that. This is often a claim used to justify sin. But you know what Jesus did say? He did say that not one jot nor tittle would pass away. Which means Genesis 1 through Revelation 22 is all the word of Christ. I don't honestly think we should print red-letter Bibles. It kind of creates a classification of, hey, these words are more important and those aren't. If you have a red-letter Bible, great, that's fine. I do too. Just understand that it's all the Word of Christ. So we pay attention to God's Word. We need the purifying work of the Word of God in our lives. And secondly, we walk by the Spirit. We walk by the Spirit. Uh, Galatians 5.16, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then Paul goes on to line out what the desires of the flesh and the fruits of the Spirit are there. And I think we overcomplicate sometimes what it means to walk by the Spirit. How do we do that? How do we walk by the Spirit? Well, again, Galatians 5 talks about the flesh and the Spirit being at odds. I had a friend who was struggling with sin one time uh, say something to me and it's not original to him. I'm not even sure who it's original to, but it sure makes a point. He said, You know, I got two dogs warring inside of me. Another way of putting that is my spirit desires what is right, my flesh desires what is wrong. I got these two dogs in a fight inside of me. He said, You know which one's going to win? I said, I don't have any idea. He said, The one I feed. The one I feed. I think that's a pretty good analogy of understanding what Paul's saying in Galatians 5. Uh, How do you you feed your flesh and your spirit as they wage war against one another? What dog gets more time and attention and food? Which one is strengthened and well-fed and which one is malnourished and starving? That dog's going to win the fight. Happiness in the kingdom comes when we show mercy not because of others' actions, but because God has been merciful to us. And when we seek a purity in heart, where, where what we desire inside lines up with how we act on the outside, particularly when others are around. These bring happiness. In the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you have uh, paid an infinite debt for us. That you, that you have repaired our glory debt by making an infinite, infinitely glorious payment on the cross. That you have forgiven us uh, uh, an infinite amount of sin beyond what we could possibly imagine. And Lord, may we, may we then be merciful to others. May we be concerned for the lost. May we, may we behave in, in ways that are right and good and true and proper to the poor and the broken and the hurting, the downcast, the sad. May we give not only physical mercy, but may we Give relational mercy in terms of not broadcasting the sins of others, not not delighting in the downfall of others, not holding grudges, but also in a deep concern for the lost. And may may we seek to live by the Spirit, feeding our spirit spiritual nourishment, that we might be people who who can live lives of of integrity, who are not uh, clean on the outside, but full of dead men's bones and uncleanness on the inside. Lord, remind us that you work in us, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. Not only in terms of giving us your spirit, but by aligning our desires with yours so that we might do what you desire. Lord, may we never cease to be overjoyed at the thought of our depravity and at the knowledge of your affection for us and your delight in us. May may we constantly proclaim and mean that you are enough for us because you are enough. Whether we realize it or not, we don't make you enough, you simply are enough. Enough, may we find our satisfaction in you, and we ask it all in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.